This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. I almost don't know where to begin. I, I want to talk about three things that are interrelated, and they have to do with our administration in Washington. Uh, the first question is one that is often asked me. You know, I, I, I kind of have my own private way of measuring public opinion because people I do not know come up to me in airports when I'm walking through them, and they talk to me as if we've been in a conversation for years. <laughs> and the number of people who have come up to me in recent months, strangers, and they say, how did this happen? <laughs> now, if somebody comes up to you, you don't know, you've never seen them before, and say, how does it happen? How did this happen? You may not have context for what they have asked you, but I think that they're talking about the Trump administration. Uh, other people come up to me, and in fact, just last week, they, one person came up and said, what are we going to do? Now, again, these are people I have never met before in my life. Now, uh, and I'm going to try to address that, too. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, number one, talk about how it happened. And then I'm going to talk about, number two, actually what I see is the central problem. And number three, I'm going to talk about what we're going to do. I might even fit in a silver lining. Uh, and... Before I do, I want to just say something about a very special person here who is named Henry Brady. And well, Henry, maybe I don't have to say anything because you've got applause before I even just your name elicits that kind of enthusiasm. But I have been at the Goldman School now for 11 years. And in most of those years, Henry has been our dean. I have worked with and for and under a lot of people in my lifetime. I have never worked with and for somebody who is as diligent, as talented, as creative, as hardworking, and as totally committed as Henry Brady is to the Goldman School. And Henry, thank you for what you've done. And uh, I could spend the whole next uh, 30 minutes talking about you and what you've done, but I think that that would be, frankly, would not be appreciated as much as it should be. Patty, I want to thank you too. So number one, how did it happen? Um, let me say what it, what, it, what it does not represent. Some people say it represents the triumph of hate and xenophobia and racism and all of those things. That's not what happened. The United States has been racist and xenophobic and misogynist 
and so forth for many, many years. Some might say since the founding or before the founding of the Republic. This is not new. The question is, why now? And I think what has triggered or what triggered some of this has to do with the intersection between economics and politics. For 35 years, most Americans have not had a raise. Their incomes have been stagnant. In fact, for the median worker in the bottom 60%, their incomes have actually dropped in real terms. Now, this is the first 35-year period in our nation's history where we've any, have there seen anything like this. In other words, an entire generation and a half have gone nowhere. This has very profound impacts. I believe that most Americans manage to cope with flat or declining incomes for a number of years by using one of three coping mechanisms. When male wages began really plunging in the 1970s, late 1970s, the first thing that most families did was they brought mothers and wives into the workforce to help prop up family incomes. A lot of people look at that great influx of women into the workforce that started in the late 1970s and early 1980s and say, well, that was all because of wonderful opportunities open to American women. That was not the primary reason. The primary reason that wives and mothers flooded into the workforce was not because of these new opportunities. It was to prop up family incomes that were otherwise in jeopardy. And that coping mechanism did work for a while, but there was only a limited amount of time and energy and effort that women could contribute because there's only a limited amount of time and energy effort women have and had. And so coping mechanism number two that I remember being aware of when I was Secretary of Labor because I would pore over the data on work hours and was amazed to see that more and more men and women were working more and more hours, more than any other advanced country by the mid and late 1990s. But that coping mechanism worked also. It allowed families to maintain their sense of security and income for a while. But that second coping mechanism was exhausted by the late 90s, early 2000s because, again, there's just a limited amount of time that people can put into work, particularly if you are also raising children and you want to have any time at all to yourself. And so the third coping mechanism came along just at the right time. And that third coping mechanism was rising home prices in the early 2000s, a lot of middle-class and even working-class Americans began to essentially use their homes as piggy banks, getting home equity loans and refinancing their homes, and that also helped a great deal maintain at least a sense that they weren't falling and maybe even were maintaining themselves. But then came 
the crash of 2008. Now, I maintain that that crash of 2008, the housing bubble exploding, and also Wall Street threatening to essentially destroy the economy, and I think it would have if there had not been a bailout, I think that that had a huge social and political consequence. Because out of that bailout came a new conception born in the mind of many Americans who ran out of coping mechanisms, by the way. It was in 2008, 2009, 2010 that a lot of Americans began to notice very palpably because they no longer had any more coping mechanisms that they were going nowhere, they were working harder than ever, and they were also in a deep recession. A recession that took away a lot of jobs, took away a lot of homes, took away a lot of savings, and they also had a palpable sense that some people got away scot-free. I can't tell you how many conversations in airports I had in 2008, 9, 10 about the fact that, that not a single Wall Street banker was indicted or went to jail. Not that I believe they should have been, but my point is not that they should have been. My point is that in the mind of so many Americans, the game was rigged. It was rigged because people no longer had any coping mechanisms, because they were losing their homes and their jobs and their savings, and because what seemed to be the force that was the behind all of it got bailed out by taxpayers and nobody paid any price. Out of that anger, and it was anger and it still is anger, out of that anger emerged two political movements, one very briefly, one still with us. On the right, the Tea Party. On the left, briefly, the Occupy movement. Now the interesting thing to me about both the Tea Party and the Occupy movement is that the language, although slightly different, was very similar. The language was about crony capitalism. It was about corruption, privilege, and basically an economic and political system that was corrupt. I talked with a lot of Tea Partiers and a lot of occupiers, and indeed, even a year and a half ago, I had a conversation with somebody who, according to the Conservative Digest, is the, one of the two most conservative Republicans in Congress. He is in the 7th District of Virginia. His name is David Bratt. And he is the one who beat Eric Cantor in 2014. First time a majority leader has been overthrown in a primary. I was interested to talk to Brat, sounds like a Dick, Dickensian character, doesn't it? I mean, because I was interested to talk to Brat because 
I had read a lot of things that he had said about politics, about crony capitalism. He is a Tea Partier, and I went down to the 4th District, and we spent the afternoon together, and I was utterly amazed. Because although we did not see eye to eye on any social issue, and we also disagreed on a lot of the normal issues that the left and the right disagree about in this country, he and I agreed completely about the corrosive effects of money in politics, that we needed to get big money out of politics, that corporate welfare, a term that he used, although I, he didn't know, popularized it in 1993, and all of the other aspects of money basically eroding the democratic system that we have, small d, could have been uttered by Bernie Sanders. This wasn't the first time that I had encountered it, but it was the first and most dramatic instance of my embodying, actually seeing that kind of anger, that rage on the right. Bernie Sanders represented one form of populism. Populism born of anger and of anger toward a system that seems to be fundamentally corrupt and broken and rigged. The word rigged is a very powerful word and it appears and appeared in the 2016 election on the left and the right. Bernie Sanders was the democratic small d populist in the sense that his language and his central theme was about making democracy work again and getting big money out of politics. The other candidate who was a populist was obviously Donald Trump, a fake populist, I believe, but he used the anger against the rigged system in much the same way. But he directed the anger not toward reforming democracy, but toward scapegoats, immigrants, Muslims, African Americans to some extent, Mexicans, those who were the other, those who were different. This is not new in American history. It's certainly not new in history. We saw much the same in the 1930s in Europe, but we have seen it also in this country. Father Coughlin in the 1930s. We saw it in the form of George Wallace, who actually, in 1968, was the only third party in recent memory to have got a lot of electoral votes. Most third parties don't get any electoral votes. So this is not a brand new phenomenon. What was new, however, is how well Donald Trump did with it. I think that the Democratic Party, and I've known Hillary Clinton since she was 22 years old, I think the Democrats and Hillary underestimated this rage, this anger, the anger at the system, the anger at the rigging of the system. Uh, now, when she started her campaign, I remember very distinctly, Hillary used a phrase that I thought signaled that she was going to begin a very different kind of campaign. She said, and I can almost 
quote it because I was so impressed. She said, the deck is stacked in favor of those at the top. Now, it was a kind of incendiary phrase. Knowing her as I've known her for 50 years, I was quite surprised. I was there when her husband announced that he was running for the first time in 1992. He never would have used anything like that. But when politicians say things like that, it doesn't mean necessarily that they are committed to what they're saying. It means that their political advisors are telling them that that's the way the public feels. She was reflecting something. I don't think she had fully internalized what she was reflecting because the campaign lost that kind of, let's put it differently than anger, let's say indignation. It's, a, I think, a, a word that more accurately reflects the way much of the public was feeling. Indignant. Indignant. Now, several of you sitting there may be saying to yourself, but wait a minute, the reason that wages were stagnant and have been stagnant for 35 years and that jobs have become less secure is not because of political corruption or because of a rigging of the game, it's because of globalization and because of technological change and all kinds of other things we know about. Yes, that's true, but other countries facing the same globalization, the same technological changes, have not had the same degree of inequality. Their median incomes have not trended downward in real terms as ours have. I would say that globalization and technological change are responsible for maybe 75 or 80% of what has happened to median incomes and the bottom 50 or 60%, but do not believe that it's just globalization and technological change. The widening inequality, the stagnant wages that we have witnessed are also a function of increasing political power on the part of the top 1% or one-tenth of 1% or however you want to describe it. And here again, I don't want to be mistaken. You've, some of you have heard me talk about this before. This is not a cabal. This is not class warfare. This is not me accusing anybody of behaving badly. This is structural. This is simply what I have seen over the past 50 years in Washington is more and more and more money in our nation's capital, finding its way in every nook and cranny. When I started out in Washington, my first job was as an intern for Robert F. Kennedy in 1967. In those years, 3%, 3% of retiring members of Congress went on to become lobbyists. Now, it is 51%. It is not because members of Congress have any fewer scruples. It's because there is so much more money in Washington. Now, Donald Trump, I don't think, was elected because people are hateful. I don't think he was elected because people necessarily believed that he himself was going to change everything. I think he was elected because a lot of people wanted to shake things up. 
They did not want business as usual or politics as usual. They did not feel, sadly, I say as a Democrat, they did not feel that Hillary Clinton was going to be sufficiently a change agent. They wanted somebody, in short, who was going to make it difficult for the old system, however that was exactly defined in people's heads, to continue. What does this mean? And what does it mean in terms of part two of my discussion with you? What's the real problem here? Well, there's obviously a problem, and it's not a left versus right problem. It's not conservatives versus liberals. The problem here has to do with democratic institutions. And let me be very clear about this. Last week, I had a discussion with a dear friend of mine named Bill Crystal, not the entertainer. Uh, Bill Crystal is the editor, or was until quite recently, the editor of something called the Weekly Standard, which is the most, or had been, the most influential Republican political media outlet. Bill Crystal and I are old friends, and we talked about what is worrying him right now, and it's exactly what is worrying me. And that is that our democratic institutions are far more fragile than anybody thought. Most of us were born after the Second World War. Or at least most of us, even if we were born before or during the Second World War, we don't have a clear, sharp, palpable memory of what happened in Germany or in Italy, or in Russia, Soviet Union, or in Spain. We don't have a palpable, clear memory of the fragility of democratic institutions, even in the United States under Franklin D. Roosevelt. We always assumed, because we're born into post-war prosperity, that our institutions were strong, powerful, we celebrated those institutions. Bill Crystal's view is that Donald Trump poses a clear and present danger to those democratic institutions. Not just or even primarily because Donald Trump is permitting or legitimizing a certain hatefulness in America, that's bad enough, but primarily because he is undermining the cornerstone of democratic institutions, and that is the truth. A belief in the truth, a confidence in the truth, an understanding of what it requires, the truth. At the Goldman School, we understand our motto to be speaking truth to power. And speaking truth to power implies that power is at least vulnerable to the truth. The truth has itself power because it is truth. The fear that Bill Crystal and I must say I share, and I'm using him not only because the conversation with him is fresh in my mind, but also because he is a conservative and a Republican and very articulate about these matters. 
And I don't believe this is a liberal versus conservative, a Democrat versus Republican issue. What we are concerned about, what worries us, is that when you have a president who so flagrantly lies, not once, but repeatedly, about central issues, such as how much did he win by? Did he actually win the electoral college vote by how much? Did he actually discover that there were three million fraudulent votes? Is there evidence of three to five million fraudulent votes? That's what he says repeatedly. There is no evidence. When you have a president who lies about such central questions about our democracy, then we have got a problem because we, as a democracy, do not know how to respond to a president who has no respect for the truth. When I say we don't know how to respond, I'm talking not just about the press. The press doesn't really know how to respond, but also we as citizens don't really know how to respond. We can read the truth, we can correct him. We can say, as a matter of fact, the rate of crimes committed by undocumented immigrants in the United States is lower than the crimes committed by native-born Americans. We can say that, it's true, we study it at the Goldman School, but when it's said over and over again that unauthorized or undocumented immigrants are killers, they are violent, they are a menace, then the public begins to believe the lie. In other words, there is in Donald Trump's administration, in his own constitution, a process by which, because we're not prepared for this, because our democratic institutions really don't know how to respond to it, there's a process by which outright lies are not really treated as outright lies. They're, talking, they're treated as controversies, or maybe there is some truth to it, or maybe, perhaps, he didn't really understand. When he says that Barack Obama wiretapped him, well, Maybe there was some truth to this. I mean, it couldn't possibly be, we say, that the President of the United States would make such an extraordinary claim about his predecessor. We have a hard time because a democracy does not know how to respond to bald-faced lies from a president. Now, couple that with the denigration, systemically, of the truth-telling sources that are elsewhere in our democracy, such as the press. When the press is repeatedly described as generating fake news, when it's repeatedly talked about as the enemy of the people, when you have almost a campaign launched against a free and independent press, then you are in the twilight zone 
because the combination of lies repeatedly coming out of the president's office and mouth, combined with denigration and demeaning statements about the press trying to correct him, ends up confusing the public. And I want to just underscore this issue of confusion. It's not that people necessarily believe the lies, it's that they become confused about whom to believe. Now combine both of those with a almost what looks like a systemic effort to undermine research and to defund a lot of the research institutions that we also come to and have come to rely on for basic research. That again is not a clear and present danger, but it could be a danger in terms of our understanding of reality. When you have a president who says, for example, that vaccines cause autism and then cuts the budget of the National Institutes of Health, you have got to be a little bit worried about the public's understanding of the truth. And finally, number four, you've got a problem when a president systemically and systematically uses deflection techniques to prevent the public from fully digesting certain news that might be damaging to the president. I'm talking specifically about testimony last week by James Comey before the House Intelligence Committee that there was an FBI investigation including some of the advisors or aides to Donald Trump during the campaign with regard to the possible collusion between them and Russia with regard to interfering in the election. The public is getting very confused already because the charge that was made on March 4th by our president against Barack Obama for wiretapping Donald Trump is somehow mixed up now in the investigation that the House Intelligence Committee is undertaking. And it will probably be mixed up in the investigation that the Senate Intelligence Committee, starting with hearings this Thursday, is undertaking. So you see the potential confusion. It's like a fog. Remember that great Errol Morris film called The Fog of War? Well, this is its own fog. And it is not an innocent fog. This is a fog of not quite deception, it's a fog of confusion. And the cynicism behind it, I believe, is founded in the supposition that if you can continue to create confusion and generate a sense that it's all partisan, then even if the FBI were to come out with evidence that there was in fact some collusion between some Trump associates and maybe Russian operatives, that those facts would be buried in the same fog of confusion and partisanship. A democratic society, in other words, becomes very fragile 
when the central common good is assailed so directly and repeatedly. Part three. Where are we going here? And what can I say positive? Well, I'm going to say a bunch of things that are positive, even at risk of being sounding like a Pollyanna. Number one, when Bill Crystal and I, or my other dear, dear friend, Senator Alan Simpson, Republican from Wyoming, who we talk about the same kinds of things, when we have these discussions, I end up feeling, ironically, elated. Because I have not had these really great common ground discussions with my Republican friends in years. Ironically, what is happening is that people are coming together. People who had been fighting, now again, Bill Crystal and Alan Simpson and I are friends, I don't really, we don't fight, but we have very different views about the common good, about what is good for the republic, but we are united in our view of what is the danger here and in our love for this country and for democratic institutions. And I believe it is starting to happen around America, not with the hardcore, let's call them the hardcore Trump supporters. I don't know how many there are, I don't think they're a huge number. If you just look at the data in terms of the number of people who voted and how many voted for Donald Trump and also discount the number that voted for him because they wanted to just shake things up, I don't think they're a number. But if you look at the country as a whole, you look at editorials that come out, editorials that are in little small towns, Missoula, Montana. I happen to read the editorials from the Missoula has two papers. I read them because I like to feel happy. <laughs> and it makes me happy that the Times-Picayune in New Orleans and the Missoula's two papers and all over this country, small papers are, and their editorial boards, are outraged. They are worried about the lies. They're worried about the fragility of truth. They are having a huge positive impact in terms of the country realizing how much it needs democratic institutions and how central the truth is to our democracy. Coterminous with that, I also feel very uplifted by the degree of activism I see around me. I haven't seen this degree of activism in terms of people saying, by golly, I can't just be an observer anymore. I've got to get involved and involved deeply. And I don't mean just Berkeley people in the town here having a demonstration on the corner of Vine and Euclid. I'm talking about much more than demonstrating. I'm talking about people who are saying, I am going to be a political activist. I'm calling my members of Congress. I'm visiting them in Washington. I'm going to their town halls. I am joining with others. I'm joining some, a group 
You may know one of the groups, indivisibleguide.com. There are many other groups. And they are not, and here again, part of the theme, they're not just Democrats, capital D. They are people who are joining together because they care about the direction of our country. Number three on my hit parade of reasons to be optimistic has a lot to do with the Goldman School and a lot to do with the University of California, Berkeley, and the fact that I spend most of my days every day with people between the ages of 18 and 28. And honestly, I have never in my 45, yes, years of teaching, I have never seen a generation of young people so idealistic and smart and committed. And they are the future. The future is not with, and excuse me if any of you in this room were, was a Trump voter, I apologize for what I'm about to say. The future is not with the Trump voters. The future is with the young people. The young people here, the young people I meet at other universities where I occasionally guest lecture, this is a great generation. And they ultimately are going to inherit this mess. And ultimately, they are going to straighten it out. Uh, finally, and here I have a more, a more humble admission. Last week I was at a memorial service for a friend at that memorial service were a bunch of us who went to Oxford together in 1968, including Bill Clinton. And we all began to talk about and realize that Donald Trump and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and all of us at this memorial service, at least all of us who went to Oxford together, we're all born in 1946. We are all getting old together. We are all, to some extent, responsible. I feel responsible. I was Secretary of Labor for five years in the 1990s, and I say to myself, why didn't I do more? Because I think I saw some of this coming. Maybe I ask myself, trying not to be grandiose, maybe if I had tried harder, we could have done more. Maybe if we had really tackled and tried to tackle the issue of widening inequality and flat wages and increasing desperation that people felt, maybe we would be in a better place now. Well. That's all water under the bridge. But I think we've learned something, and that's my final silver lining. I think we've all learned something. I think we've learned that you can't separate the economics from politics, that you can't expect a large group of Americans to be sinking for so long and assume that they won't react. We cannot expect that those of us who are privileged and fortunate enough to be in the top 5% or 
that we can secede effectively from the rest of the country and expect the rest of the country to be just fine. That is no longer a proposition that one can believe in and still be aware of what has happened. So for all of those reasons, I counted four, maybe there's a fifth buried in there, there are silver linings. I am an internal optimist. We are resilient, extraordinarily resilient. If you look at American history, every time we've been down, we come up. And we will do so again, assuming we survive. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what I'd like to do uh, is uh, just, I don't know how long I went, and I don't know how much time we have for your questions, but I would like to entertain uh, at least some of your questions, because I'm sure that you have them. Yes. My question is about translating the populist anger, or indignation, sorry, that you spoke of into progressive policy. Um, it seems that in light of this election, there's an extent to which voters in, in mass are either cast as as malicious or hateful, you know, at worst, but, but at best, maybe confused or manipulated. Um, it, it's clear that you have faith in the decency of, of the American public, but I'm curious about what role you envision for them in the crafting of a policy platform uh, that can turn that indignation into, into actual progress. I think most people are extremely cynical about policy as it has been presented to them mostly through campaigns because they don't see officials who are elected following through on the policies that they enunciated in the campaign. Partly it's because they can't they discover the government, as Donald Trump has discovered, government is much more complicated. Uh, partly it's because some of those policies should never have been advanced in the beginning. But I think it's also because there has been a, a kind of a, an undermining over the last certainly 50 years in the public's general trust and faith in government and the ability of politicians and the willingness of politicians to do what they promise. Now, having said that, I still find it amazing the number of politicians who, in campaigns, give a list of 10 policies, or here, here are my 20 policies for healthcare. Or, you know, um, I had a lot of conversations, as I know some of other people in this room did, during the 2016 presidential campaign with Hillary Clinton's policy people. And they were very talented. They are very talented. They put into effect more they didn't put anything into effect. They put into the campaign more sensible policies and more policies under every, every title, every issue you can imagine than I've ever seen in a campaign. The reality is voters didn't care. They didn't see it. They didn't hear it. They didn't even want to go there. Now that's a Maybe it's a, it's a discouraging thing to say to a student at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Uh, 
doesn't mean that policy analysis or policy is irrelevant by any stretch of the imagination. I just mean that the connective tissue between policy and politics is now almost frayed entirely. Now, yes. Do you think that Ryan has learned enough from his brief experience to consider overturning the Hassett rule, which stated that no legislation would be taken to the floor unless it could be passed with Republicans only, and therefore open the door to a possible compromise, which of course is what legislation is all about? I think Paul Ryan, like Boehner, his predecessor, is in an almost impossible position. Uh, partly because he's got a Republican Party that is so split. He showed in the first high-stakes, really high-stakes vote that was a test of his power and the president's power that he could not deliver. I would be surprised if he remains speaker under those circumstances. Oh, yes. At least for the time being, it will. Yes, I'm just, I'm just following wherever the microphone goes. I have abdicated full responsibility, complete responsibility. Do you see anyone emerging from the Democratic side as a leader? Well, there are plenty of leaders. I, I, you know, I have my personal favorites. I think that there are very, very good people. Uh, there's, not a, there's not as strong a backbench as, I've, as I remember, say, 30 years ago or 40 years ago. But there are extremely talented and good people. And again, one of the silver linings here is I've never, since the late 60s, heard as many people and communicated with as many people who have decided that they're going to run for office. Right now. Right now. I mean, every day I'm getting more and more communications and letters and emails and everything else from people who are diving in who had never run for office before. So that's all good. So um, I don't know the name of the gentleman back there that asked you a question about policy and you said it didn't resonate with the American voters. And it occurred to me that Three million American voters were basically unheard in this election. And that leads me to what you think about the Electoral College and whether there is any chance that we can get rid of it. Because to me, that is the greatest threat to our democracy, the fact that all of the people who live in urban centers are basically discounted. And the two California senators equal your friend Alan Simpson and whoever the other senator from Wyoming is. I mean, it's absurd. They don't really equal him at all. <laughs> um, but let me, let, me, let me just say, I, I think it's, it is terribly difficult to amend the Constitution, as you know, as it should be. In fact, the only thing that I really worry about continuously is that we might have an Article 5 convention if enough states agree, and that would be 
to my mind, in this political atmosphere, hugely dangerous. Uh, but there is a way to make the Electoral College irrelevant. Uh, and uh, indeed, one of you, one of the most innovative people here named Steve Silberstein, has been on this for years. And Steve, you actually were the first one to tell me about it. Uh, and that is a project that entails getting states to agree to give all of their electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote. When states with electoral votes totaling 270, which is what you need to win, agree to do that, then all of them are in. And right now there are, correct me Steve, how many electoral votes? 11 states, 165. So it's not out of the question that we could get to the 270. And I hope we do it that way rather than through Article 5. We have time for one more question. Linda. Um, what advice would you give the Democrats in terms of how they react to all of the crazy things that Trump does every day and, and what happens in the Congress? That's a big question. Linda asked, what, what advice do I have to, for Democrats besides the things I've said? That is, show indignance and be indignant. Uh, I think that I would say to Democrats, uh, you have an opportunity. This is a teachable moment, folks. It's a teachable moment about, number one, democratic small d institutions and who's going to guard them, and how precious they are. It's a teachable moment about inequality and the dangers of a society where so many people feel economically disenfranchised. It's a teachable moment about how much we need each other and also about the perils of hate. And I would say to Democrats, what you really need to do is not talk about policy so much. You need to talk about values and morality. That's what people care about, public morality. I'm not talking about private morality in terms of what happens in bedrooms. I'm talking about public morality, the abuse of power and how power ought to be utilized and used. That's what people need to hear, want to hear, use this as a teachable moment. Thank you all.